0: Us, but uh, for the time being, imagine how this would have sounded to the Philippians, who were in general a very poor congregation. They'd finally managed to scrape something together to send off to Paul, and now it seems like he is diminishing the significance of their gift. Uh, so he turns around quickly and says in verse 14, Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. It was good. It was kind. The alleviation of Paul's suffering was not the most essential thing. Rather, it demonstrated Kindness on their part and paul valued that their support had been long-standing and Meaningful and you philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel That's when the gospel first began to advance in philippi not just in general But when paul planted this church the beginning of the gospel when I left macedonia, which is the district Indianapolis is to indiana the way philippi is to macedonia when I left macedonia no church No church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, which is in Macedonia, Indianapolis and Lafayette and Bloomington, even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. This fruitful partnership extends all the way back the time when they first met and Paul first came to Philippi in chapter 16 and he was kicked out of Philippi and then he was kicked out of Berea and then he was kicked out of Thessalonica and eventually he was kicked out of the region and had to go to the south all the way to Athens and Corinth which I didn't realize until I looked at the map was a long way away from the northern part of, of Greece and all along the Philippians had been giving him support and aid up until the time when they stopped and then now they've continued again, and Paul is very grateful for their renewed concern. Then he gives us, in verse 17, the main verse from this section. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. Paul is thankful for the gift. It's helpful, uh, but much more important is that the gift is a demonstration of their kindness and their concern for him, and their partnership in the gospel. I'm sure you all have uh, similar experiences where you receive a gift, and the value of the gift itself is very, very small compared to the uh, significance of the thoughtfulness and affection in the hearts of the gift giver. Uh, I come up with many examples out of our own marriage, both on the giving end and the receiving end, but I was reminded of how many times I have received from people in this room, a gift in the form of peanut M&Ms. Not an extravagant gift, but they are my favorite. And whether they're coming from the Aitans or the Hunters or the Kinseys or Aaron and Brie, uh, it's the thoughtfulness of the gift. Not just the yeah, other the thought that counts, but, but really the kindness and thoughtfulness. But I do have to be like Paul and say, not that I seek the gift. I'm just giving you an opportunity to be generous, like Jesus, and to express my thanks. Okay. For Paul, it wasn't about candy. It was about sustenance. And Paul didn't want their money. He simply wanted them to be growing in Christ, growing in fruitfulness, which would include generosity. I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payments and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts that you sent. Paul doesn't particularly praise them for their generosity to him but for their generosity towards God. Paul and the Philippians are in this fruitful partnership, this giving and receiving for the advance of the gospel. And he values their gift to him not as because it eases his own situation, but because it is actually a gift to God. Having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. So what will God's response be to this sacrificial generosity? And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. So Paul is thanking them for this gift, but he's careful to drive their attention to the main point, God's work and God's glory. He's faithful, he is trustworthy, and he is providing for their needs according to his purposes. And from the big picture of the Bible, we know what God's big picture purposes are. He is gathering a people that reflect the likeness of his son, Jesus Christ. We've seen that in this letter. The gospel is advancing to people who haven't heard it before. The gospel is advancing in Christians, making them more like Jesus, joyful and unified and humble. Uh, He's at work in us, empowering us to uh, work out our own salvation, as we saw in chapter 2. And this gift from the Philippians demonstrates uh, generosity and unity, showing that they are becoming truly faithful and fruitful Christians. So, if God will supply our every need, then that forces us to ask, what needs exactly? Because some people seem to have the idea that they need a lot more than maybe they actually do. And we don't want to turn this into a promise for anything that you can imagine, because I can imagine quite a lot. And obviously, it's not happening. But on the other hand, we don't want to um, devalue the promise and uh, make it seem like, okay, God is just going to provide for the basic needs of survival for the Christian because that makes him seem a little bit cheap. You know, if this is according to his riches, then he should be able to do better than just the basic essentials of life for his people. And we can look around the world and see that even that low standard isn't being met because in Africa and the Middle East and the Far East and in Indian subcontinent, Christians are routinely facing starvation and oppression And uh, Injustice, persecution, lack of shelter, churches burned down, even to the point of of death. Yet there's so many verses from Jesus and from the apostles about ask whatever you wish, pray in my name, it will be given to you, faith like a mustard seed. So how are we to understand this promise of God in a meaningful way that doesn't cheapen it to the point of worthlessness or uh, make it some sort of, Conditional performance based promise that would take us off towards prosperity theology. Uh, I want to answer that carefully and from the text because I don't want it to seem like a cop out. What you need depends on what you want to accomplish. If you want to climb Mount Everest, then you need the right gear. If you want to retire at the age of 60, you need a pile of money. If you want to have not just a job, but a career, then you're going to need a whole lot of skills, not all of which can be obtained at a four-year university. Your purposes determine what your needs are. So if we want to know for what needs God is going to so richly provide, then it would be helpful if we remembered what it is he's trying to accomplish. And he hasn't made it a secret. He's told us God is gathering a people that reflects the likeness of his son, Jesus. He's not doing it by himself. He lets us help, and uh, different servants have different tasks, and different tasks have different needs, and those are the needs that he is meeting. Uh, He's not meeting needs towards any other end, not uh, our comfort and security, not our kids' happiness, not our legacy, although he is a gracious God, and he does love to bless his children, and sometimes that stuff happens, but he is working towards the fulfillment of his purposes, and he has openly told us, what he's doing, so that we can joyfully join him as we were made to do. We saw this when we were studying Hebrews last year. Chapter 11, heroes of the faith victorious. And chapter 11, heroes of the faith who were killed or worse before the promise was anywhere close to being fulfilled. In Romans chapter 8, verse 29, God gives a purpose statement. He is conforming his people to the likeness of Jesus. And then an unbreakable chain demonstrates how not a single one Of God's people can ever be separated from his love. In the words of Paul from that chapter, uh, we cannot be separated by accusation or condemnation, tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, or sword. Not any angel or demon or distance or death in, in our language, not job loss, not foreclosure, not betrayal, not illness, not even natural disaster can separate God's people from God's love. Now, is he promising that we're going to avoid all those things? Of course not. He's promising he's going to use those things to make us more like Jesus. And even though the suffering is real, it is always for a purpose, and God's purposes cannot be thwarted. So, my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in Christ, riches in glory in Christ Jesus, to work and to will for unity and humility and for our joy and. for the advance of the gospel, to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. What's funny, if you go back and read the first dozen verses of this letter in chapter 1, how much they parallel these last dozen verses that we're looking at here. It's just got all the same stuff. God's work, God's faithfulness, partnership, growing in Christ, growing as a church, fruitfulness. All for the glory of God. It's the same stuff, beginning, middle, and end. And if you're not persuaded, you can go home this afternoon and read it for yourself and see if I'm wrong. I had it in the PowerPoint, but I cut it because it's homework. Read chapter one, first ten or twelve verses, and see what it has to say. Now we could end right here and go home early, and knowing that we have adequately and satisfactorily explained what do these verses say and what does it mean. But before we walk away from Philippians for good, it would be good if we let it do its work in our lives. Uh, what is facing our congregation today that we can view differently, view correctly in light of what we've learned from the book of Philippians, in light of knowing Christ and growing in him in the advance of the gospel? I want to consider three uh, disjointed, disconnected points of application. We're going to jump from one to the next. And it'll be kind of herky-turky. Uh, first, we're going to look uh, back at contentment, like I promised, and then we're going to look at the November 6th election. And then we're going to look at today being Mission Sunday. So first, Paul before politics. In verses 11 through 13, uh, Paul talks about his contentment. He said it was something he had to learn. He had to learn how to be content when he had nothing, when stuff was coming up short. And we know from reading his other letters that that happened fairly often. More often than not, he was in a situation of need. Uh, At one point, he writes to his friend Timothy, and he says, Timothy, I'm in prison. I'm cold. I'm bored. Bring me my warmest cloak. Bring me my books. Bring me papers so that I can write. Bring me Sudokus. Just bring me yourself so that I can be with you because I am lonely and I am cold and I am bored and I miss you. On the other hand, there were seasons of his life when he had more than enough, abundance and plenty, and he was well-fed and well-taken care of, and he had to learn how to be content in that situation as well. Commentators are divided on what exactly was the secret that he had to learn. Some folks say it was... Uh, knowing Christ out of chapter 3. Other folks say that uh, since he lived on both sides of the track, he had gotten the right perspective to be able to, to handle one situation or the other, having seen both. Other folks say that here in verse 13, when Paul says that I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, that God was specifically empowering him for this challenge. I think those are each part of the puzzle, but the key piece is where he goes to later in 19 and 20. He has embraced God's glory as his one thing Paul learned to be content by learning that physical comfort could not be his one thing when Uh, knowing Christ and making him known becomes your one thing, then you're willing to put up with a whole lot of suffering in order to further that goal. At the same time, you won't be distracted by the temptation and care of riches because contentment is not any more likely to be found among the wealthy as it is among the poor. Uh, You know, you move into a bigger house and all of a sudden you need a bigger TV and a bigger lawnmower and a better patio and a bigger grill and a better car, speaking hypothetically, of course. And uh, Paul, no matter what season of life he was in, his contentment was in knowing Christ and being empowered by God for fruitful ministry. In the same way, we can face seasons of abundance without being overcome by indulgence and face seasons of deprivation without being overcome by want if we remember what God is trying to accomplish. One verse to finish out this section, First uh, Timothy six seventeen. As for the rich... In this present age, what would we expect them to say? You know, have them send me all their money, have them give it all away, uh, tell them that they're ugly, we don't want them in our churches. No. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. That's a picture of someone whose contentment is not in their physical, material comfort and security, but who is using their resources to further the kingdom of God. Okay, now we can talk about politics. How do unity and humility and joy and contentment and courage and the advance of the gospel help us think about the election on Tuesday and how to respond to those around us? First... If you haven't already, vote. Uh, It's clear that being a citizen of heaven does not in any way mean that we are to disengage from our uh, privileges and rights as citizens of the place where God has placed us. Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you. So God told the people of Israel through Jeremiah when God had removed them out of the promised land and exiled them to Babylon of all places. Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you. So Pray for our leaders, pray for the election, work for the good of our city and state and national government, and vote. Second, maintain some perspective, please. Remember our one thing and what the church is trying to accomplish. Elections tell us the mood of the electorate and the sum of the shifts in public opinion since the last time we had an election, all those eons ago back in 2010. Uh, But elections themselves usually don't drive The shifts in culture, they follow them, although occasionally we do get a leader who actually leads us someplace, but usually they're just administrators. So how do we change culture? The church seeks to change culture, not through the ballot box or through force of law, but one soul at a time. New people coming to Christ, moving from darkness to light. Christians becoming more like Christ, growing in humility and unity, becoming better citizens of heaven and citizens of their homeland change in culture starts with you and me on our knees with the Bible open, looking in the mirror of God's word. And it expands out from there to our spheres of influence, the uh, family members and our friends and our coworkers and our neighbors. What is, what is our goal? Not electoral supremacy or economic prosperity, but the advance of the gospel in our lives and in our communities, helping people actively pursue their walk with Christ. So if your guy wins On Tuesday night, is your contentment going to be increased? If your guy loses on Tuesday night, will your contentment be shaken? If we wake up Wednesday morning and we don't have a winner yet, what's going to happen to your contentment then? Is God still going to be at work meeting the needs of his people to accomplish his purposes? Is he still going to be orchestrating the affairs of men for his glory and the good of his people? It is unfortunate, and I don't think it's any coincidence, that as we try to be like Christ and try to be like the Philippians and care for those in need, that those who are motivated to provide care for the unborn needy often find themselves politically at odds with those who want to care for the underprivileged needy. And that ought not be. Standing up for the poor and the defenseless and the voiceless should not be a red and blue issue, whether we're talking about dignity in the human womb or dignity out on the streets. And that's just something to pray about and think about between now and tuesday night and beyond all right last point abrupt turn here mission sunday not only did the philippians give material aids to paul but they were also willing to send epaphroditus who is willing to give his time and in fact risk his life to serve as a messenger and a delivery guy for the philippians to so taking the gift to paul and taking this letter from paul back to philippi we also have the privilege of giving time and energy and resources to the advance of the gospel. In 2012, Prairie View gave 4% of our budget to the nine missions that we support. And we'd like to see that percentage increase from four up towards 10 over several years. Uh, last year, 2012, uh, last budget year, it came to $12,000. We're seeking to bump that to $14,000. But beyond what we can do, it, it's, we're hoping. Mardonna, we've got to vote on it still. It's congregation. We'll get there. We'll get there. Next, yeah, sometime we're going to have a congregational meeting, and there'll be a budget for you guys to vote on. That's coming up in the near future, before 2013. Uh, information on all of these missions is found on the website and uh, we can go uh, it doesn't have to be just through prayer view that we support them we can partner with them as individuals too because they all need money and they need prayer and correspondence from home not all of you are going to be in a position to give above and beyond what you give to the church but you all can pray and you can write now you'll each be drawn to different ministries according to how God has uh, built you and developed you Uh, But since I'm the one in the pulpit, we're going to talk about my favorites this morning. And my number one favorite, easily, is the Ingrams in Tanzania. They are uh, doing Bible translation work there. We've had Andy and Shauna and their kids here a couple times. Andy has preached. And you talk to them. They're nice people. You would never have any idea that their email updates would be absolutely hilarious. Not only do they give you a good idea of what's going on with translation and preaching and training in Tanzania, but also all the other ridiculous stuff that happens in Morogoro, like the monkeys and the bacon and the station wagons. They just have really great uh, support letters. We get a lot of support letters uh, through the church and at the Walker household, and they're not all that fun to read. But Ingram's is always a treat. That's always a good read. But that's not why they're my favorites. They're my favorites because uh, they're doing the work of translating the Word of God. It is really something special to be able to give somebody a Bible that didn't exist in that language five years ago. And actually, the way they do it is they go through uh, a book of the Bible at a time. And if you've ever gotten into a book series before the author finished writing it, then you might have some idea that it's like if you got into your, uh, your Harry Potters or your Left Behind or God Help Us Twilight, you have that anticipation of when's the next book? coming out. When's the next book coming out? And if you've read Matthew and you've read Mark and you've read Luke, and you know it's only two more months until John comes out in your language, that's, that's pretty exciting. And I think that's pretty neat. And that's why they are my favorite, because God works through his word to accomplish all the work that gets done, whether in Haiti or in Ireland or in the Muslim community or in the middle schools. Uh, I'm also a big fan of Uh, Pine Haven, not just because we can send money there, because we can send people there on short-term trips to go out and work on the ranch where uh, the kids are. uh, The folks out there are doing uh, work that is not just helpful to uh, the kids that are in need, but also to those local governments that, you know, they've got these juvenile cases, and there's nothing else that can be done for them. And the judge says, all right, son, last chance, you're going to Pine Haven, and if it doesn't work out there, then then welcome to the adult criminal justice system. And so it's a very labor-intensive ministry, but it's also a very strategic ministry that they're doing out there. Same thing as at Third Phase; They need volunteer labor as much as they need money, which they do also need. Uh, Lastly, I was sitting at my desk uh, working on the message, and an email comes in from City of God Church. They're into their own space, and uh, they are in a strip mall. So you got the hearing aid folks and the dentist and the... um, the insurance agency, and then you got the space at the end that is City of God Church, but nobody knows it because they don't have a sign. And the people who go there know that it's City of God Church, but they don't have a sign up above. And in this day, churches grow much more through invitations and word of mouth than by straight advertising. But, you know, putting a sign above the door couldn't hurt. But apparently, uh, a sign that meets the code and the requirements for their space $6,000. It's not essential and they'll do it when the money's there, but they have so many needs and so many opportunities, so many hard decisions about what to do with the resources that they've been entrusted with. So pray for Eric and Jesse and Joel and Molly and everybody else that's up there and the work that they have to do. Not every ministry is going to make your heart sing. I'm sure I'll care much more about middle school ministry once I actually have a middle schooler and that's What's important for me and for all of us is to respond to what God is doing in our lives, to hear the word of the Lord and to respond to it, to make his glory and the advance of his name our number one thing and to grow in the likeness of his son. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for the chance that we've had to look into your word, not just this morning, but over the last... Two months as we have been studying this letter to the Philippians. Thank you that uh, we've had uh, Pastor Riddle and Pastor Jeff who've been able to help uh, us see what is here. And I pray that it won't just be information and interesting items and uh, neat things about the Bible and history. I pray that you would be working in the lives of uh, the people who already know you and the people who do not yet know you. That you would be drawing them to your son Jesus Christ and helping us to see him as the great purpose of all creation for whom and through whom all things are made Thank you that we can be reconciled to you through his work on the cross And I pray that as your spirit works among us as a church and as individuals that we would be growing in humility We would be growing in unity We'd be growing in courage And we'd be growing in joy as we do the work you've put us here to do and faithfully serve you It's in your great name that we pray, Jesus, and it's for your glory that we pray. Amen. Amen.